Hello and welcome to the AV Forums podcast for Wednesday the 20th of May 2015 and joining me on this edition are Steve Withers. Furniture movers we've got, strange phenomenon, there's no listing. Mark Hodgkinson. They're here. Mark Botwright. Smell my clothes. And Ed Selly. You're jamming my frequency. Uh, hello, welcome back to the AV Forums podcast and like some kind of poltergeist thing that we are we discussed last week did we not edward uh hanging things on walls and the possibility that they could fall off again yes that um now i don't know how much we obviously last week's attempt to put the telly on the wall failed because the bracket was wrong uh, as we speak the chap is back with a much more substantial looking bracket but no, no we're I'm talking about wor- we're talking about yeah, your tv I, here i know i'm just worried about having seen the photos i'm just hoping that it's a very substantial bracket indeed and it is in fact going to be you know welded to my house the thing we're getting at here i don't know if everybody's seen it or not head to the homepage um and find the story about the uh, the oled that fell off the wall now this oled was not ed's because he can't afford one and it wasn't the review sample although lg did panic when that photo went up and (laughs) And got in touch saying, Mark hasn't dropped that TV, has he? I was out all Friday afternoon as well. So, <laughs> so they'd obviously try to get in touch with you and then thought you, oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, that I was make, in hiding. That makes sense. I think it's safe to assume they shit themselves on Friday <laughs> afternoon. Um, and we really shouldn't have laughed because it was a forum uh, moderator, the Limey, who had paid a lot of money for this TV and had it installed and it fell off the wall and luckily enough he was there to catch it as it hit the uh, the glass cabinet underneath and smashed the glass cabinet but the TV thankfully at the last time we're checking up on the thread anyway um, still works um, but this was what we discussed um, in last week's podcast and Ed had trouble last week as well so Ed you've got a man in again today doing some more drilling yeah I showed him that thread I said, I do, not, I, I do not want this. This is this this is this is not good. He interesting. He has his own theories as to why that might have happened. When, as the as having read the thread, it's very clear that a much much heavier television has stayed on the wall for several years. But nonetheless, yes, it it, it adds a certain um, nervous excitement, shall we say, to uh, it, the business of my own television going up on the wall. <laughs> did it come off the bracket, or did it just come away from the wall? The bracket with bracket in came, tow. With came away with the television. As best as I, yeah, that seems to be. The, it took a big piece of plasterboard with it as well. Yeah, because it's it's what I've found from any kind of bracket is usually the bracket's fine, but it's the wall that you know will be the weak point. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, this is going on an external wall, my one. So I'm hoping that if if my wall is a weak point, frankly, the television coming off is the least the least of my worries. Wait, you see the, so. the the thing about the OLED coming off the wall is that OLED weighed nine. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah. that's... You know, you could put it in a breeze and it'll float. Well, Last week, I had not, that 78-inch Samsung. If you put that on the wall, it's likely your entire house would fail. It's <laughs> a great advert for the TV, though, if it still works. Yeah, the Toyota Hilux of the high-end television world. Yeah. Well, it was last year's model, the EC970, and I think, Mark, and you can correct me on this one because I haven't seen it for a bit, but I think, that isn't the back of that panel a uh, carbon fibre weave? I have no idea. It's shiny black plastic. <laughs> no, it's not. It's not. It's not just plastic. Because, oh, right. of the, because of the thinness of the OLED panel, they were using, they had to strengthen it somehow, and, and they used a carbon fibre, which I think is one of the reasons why it has survived that fall. Right. Largely. Yeah, it's still quite tough, I have to say, but I haven't tested it to, to the extent of the line. Right, you go across there and throw it now. <laughs> it could be, could be five minutes. I'll get my camera. Where's that hammer? <laughs> Make sure you've got another good alibi this time. AV yeah. Forums moves into the Will It Blend category. <laughs> Down. Extreme teardown. Stress testing with a hammer. So I, I guess what we said last week just doesn't account because I think last week we said get a professional in. Well, you got a professional in in the film. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the, that, so the advice is what now? Um, <laughs> the advice, I would say, um, if you've got a very new television, by which I mean a model where there's little experience on the forums, um, perhaps the small pool of owners ought to draw straws so that the, one of them has to experiment with putting the television up on the wall to see if it stays up. I mean, I'm relatively confident because there are umpteen GT60s in the world and many of them are on the wall already. So I'm, I've, I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful that this is going to be fine. But yeah, I mean, obviously there's not a huge amount of data uh, to, to work out whether this is a one in a million thing or whether the, the way that this bracket spreads spreads the load and the mass of the television isn't quite as effective as it could be maybe the curve played a factor well i mean i i frankly blame curved televisions for everything from about <laughs> 1939 onwards but i i don't know it strikes me as unlikely 
is the Curve TV the equivalent of Hitler, is it? Yes. The great evil that threatens society. It must slightly throw off, though, you know, kind of its centre of gravity, where the weight's coming from. Particularly if it's any kind of amount where you're tilting it slightly further forward. It surely still has to be balanced. Well, it has to be balanced left, right. I appreciate what you're saying about... I mean, but I mean, OLED's... Well, most modern televisions, curved or otherwise, because they're so thin, they bulge, don't they bulge at the bottom? So the weight is likely well, to be there anyway. There's in the back. It's got like a connections and the amplification speakers are like in a, in a bulgy bit at the back. A bulgy I mean, bulge. it must be said, I mean, I think, I, obviously I haven't got all of my historic televisions here to check, but I've always found all of the flat screens I've owned have been, they, they, they have, as near as makes no difference, 50-50 weight distribution left to right. So unless someone's going to tell me otherwise, I don't think that that should be a phenomenon. I think this is a new section we need to add into the reviews. You know, is it 50-50? How does it handle? <laughs> Can you induce oversteer in your television? What happens if you throw it from the top of the stairs? I can see um, us having some issues with samples drying up from key manufacturers <laughs> if we return everything in a dustpan and brush. I'm just saying. Uh, right, so anyway, I guess we've given some useful consumer advice in there somewhere. If you can find it, well done. Right, let's move on. Competitions. Uh, Hodge, round them up for us. There's 55 days at Peking, uh, which I've never seen and I don't like the title of. And that one's available till the 1st of June. And then there's the entire Dirty Harry collection on Blu-ray, which is running till the 5th of June. And that's it. Munich High End Show, Ed, you went along, yes. you had lots of jam and sausage, and you looked at some hi-fi. Yes, I suppose if you wanted the ba- the most basic summation of what went on, I went out to Germany, I ate pork products, consumed some beer, and looked at some lovely, lovely radiograms. As ever, uh, Munich, it, it's just another world, if I'm honest. It, it puts into perspective how, if you like, regional and in some regards limited shows in the UK are. Um, and yeah, there's some, 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 you know, activity at all ends of the market, uh, which is actually slightly unusual for Munich. Um, more often than not, it's a sort of festival of things that cost more than my house. But, uh, if I was put into perspective in, in the space of 20 minutes, um, I was talked round the latest iteration of the living voice Vox Olympian loudspeaker, which I did put in the show report two years ago, so I didn't put it in again. But uh, they've been making that even shinier and even better. And pricing is now, well, you know, if you have to ask, you can't afford it. But think it's got to be in a region of half a million quid. Uh, but then within minutes, I was in the Audio Quest room and they were showing off a brand new DAC, which they'll be releasing um, in the next sort of two months or so, called the Beetle. And they are really very keen indeed to get the price hopefully below 140 pounds which for state-of-the-art usb implementation that's that's not bad at all so yeah there was there was activity at all all parts of the market i picked uh, a couple of items which i felt were sort of relevant to you know across across a, a, a spread of a spread of things of, of interest on the forum but yeah there's lots and lots of um other other items uh, i suppose one of the more interesting ones uh, and this may or may not appeal to steve because he's the person that's reviewed the other part of this system but q q acoustics has finally relented and they'll be releasing a center speaker for the concept line with the um the, the funky gel core cabinets. So uh, we'll have to have an argument over who gets to review that because I suspect as a 5.1 system, that's going to be mighty. Now, is this a, a dedicated uh, centre speaker? Yes. So it's different from the left and the right? Correct. So they've gone to the effort of actually engineering it up. And given the, the cost of getting those cabinets tooled, they are, that's, you know, it's not no small undertaking. But um, obviously we've got the QAQ6 3000 series. Those will be with me imminently i've had to obviously wait until stuff's been done in the room but then yeah as i say the concepts that that promises to be a pretty high-end experience for still sensible money i couldn't get a price out of q acoustics on the stand is to be absolutely confirmed and tied down but it shouldn't be too too outrageous and i think that's going to be very interesting indeed um, and then, uh, yeah, t- uh, obviously, uh, XTZ were doing uh, an Auro 3D demonstration and very good at this too. Is this your first Auro, you mean, Edwin? Auro, Auro. Leave me alone. Auro. What, what did you think of Auro? What was the demo of, first of all? And what did it was the standard of? demo disc. Uh, obviously, I've not heard it strutting its stuff. The most interesting thing for me in relation to Atmos 
in if you like in loose comparison and it can't as you know be a like for like comparison but there is a real sense that um oro shifts the axis of the of the the, the soundtrack much more than with, with atmos i occasionally get the feeling that it's the conventional soundtrack with stuff laid on top um and oro just seems to be it, it seems to be more i hate to use the word holistic but it's more sort of cohesive and it just felt i mean it may may simply be down now to your, the your comparison now your comparisons here ed are i'm assuming that the xtz's had the speakers in the locations and the one yes they it. were up on the uh, they were at, they weren't um they were actually on side walls yep. but height rather right than okay and the atmos system that you've listened to that was bouncing the sound off the ceiling in my own house yes but there were two atmos demonstrations with proper in situ height channels going on at the show and the arrow one Oro one just felt more as i say just felt a little bit more sort of cohesive across the whole all of the speakers in use don't get me wrong um one of the atmos demonstrations by a german speak sort of direct sales speaker company called uh, newbert uh was that was very very good indeed um given that by the standards of some of the speaker packages and speak and sort of stereo speakers on display, it was comparatively sensibly priced. It really had properly impressive sort of uh, sound pressure levels and and was very clean, very cohesive, and had very good integration. But it was plainly Expendables three, uh, which, as we know, is still not a masterpiece of uh, of cinematic work. And it just it just didn't feel as together, as admittedly as the you know the prime picked demo disc sequences that, that XTZ had to work with. Just a quick aside, but uh, last week I watched Unbroken in Atmos, which uh, starts off with a bombing raid over Japan. And that first 15 minutes is some of the best sound design I've ever, ever heard at home on anything. Uh, and that was an Atmos soundtrack, and it was absolutely amazing. There was, you know, there was bits where there's flak exploding around the planes, and the flak is exploding in within the room in three-dimensional space. It was just brilliant. And then the sounds, the whole the plane creaking around you, bullets ripping through the fuselage. It was awesome. What the hell is that? I think he's given up and walked off. <laughs> so right back, sorry. Told you. Yeah, so I would agree with Ed in the sense that I think some of the Atmos tracks I've heard so far have been more like 5.1 or 7.1. But again, you've, again, you've got speakers on the ceiling now. Absolutely, yes. I mean, all I'm saying is I think there have been some tracks that have sounded like they've been basically 5.1 or 7.1 mixes with bits added on top. But this felt like a cohesive design from the ground up Atmos soundtrack. Well, I mean, where... it's going to take people time to get used yeah, exactly. to the tools and, yeah. and get used to what they can do and what they can't do. Because I mean, one of the things you don't want to do ever is to take the, the viewer out of the experience. No. So you can understand why there's there's been a bit of caution um, in terms of how things are mixed, but that's what John Wick, which he said was absolutely superb, now unbroken. So it looks like we're starting to yeah, get... Yeah, unbroken basically put you in that plane during that bombing raid. It was visceral in the extreme, and I absolutely loved it. But there's other scenes where they're, they're in a life raft and they launch a couple of flares, and you see, you see the flare going up in the air and basically exploding way above you. It was really good. And then uh, I watched Gravity at the weekend, Atmos mix of that, and... That's a real test of how tonally balanced your speakers are because the the, you know, the voices are moving around that room in 360-degree space all the time, constantly just panning around you. Um, impressive again. Uh, but it'll be a great test disc for, uh, for for speaker systems. Right, Eddie Buck? Yeah, sorry. There's, um, okay. uh, the, the <laughs> TV's falling off the wall. No, no. <laughs> it's unfortunate. that um, The uh, chap is very diligently measuring everything, which is possibly a problem because it would appear the people that built the house didn't so the, the, rack, the, the, the mount is perfectly perfectly aligned on the wall but the my rest pic- of the house is off skew my picture rail is not so it makes the television look like it's on the piss so we're just working out what we're going to do with that so um, we've all done that with a shelf at some point haven't we yeah. <laughs> never go by the spirit level oh no 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 as i say his work is is i've just been shown it, it absolutely and 100% correct. It's just no, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, you can put just... up a shelf perfectly and then, and then like, shit. <laughs> nothing else is straight. Yes. Well, that's what's happening so, here. So you're going to so. have to find what, what, how far off it is and then see if you can get away with it with the TV. Yeah, we're just going to correct it by eye. So I'm afraid, yeah. So I'll probably have to hurtle off again in about 10 minutes, but we'll, we'll keep going to them. Um, but, so XTZs, uh, what did you think of them, sound-wise? Uh, I know it's a show floor and it's never the best. Well, uh, it was, it was one of the... Um, uh, sort of cabin uh, effects on the on the lower floor. I, I was I was extremely impressed. Uh, it's very weird to attend a very small number of multi-channel demonstrations in the middle of 
what is effectively an entirely stereo show. Um, if you like it sort of monkeys about with your own programming because there are different different things you, you, you've been listening to sound in a certain way and then obviously you've got much more going on but I thought handover was excellent um, you know despite the fact that there were when they were running the two triple stacks there would have been a lot of bass radiating area in a small space but it was all very well controlled very well integrated yeah you know, sound, sounded sounded pretty smart by all accounts. Yeah, I think for the money, they they are pretty special, pretty special little speakers. Anyway, let's move on. Um, anything else of of note from Munich? There are well, I mean, there are two two very peculiar, if you like, uh, wars going on. The the first is to see how many armatures you can stick inside a pair of earphones. I had thought that 10 might be a sticking point for some time, but no. Uh, so as you saw, Astell and Kern have uh, had an American gentleman design them a pair of arm, uh, in-ear earphones with 12 drivers aside, um, which, yes, was quite something. And uh, the other one is that uh, record players are, are actually managing to get even bigger believe it or not, there were some absolute monsters, and not necessarily all expensive monsters on display. Uh, and uh, arms, uh, the, the, the tone arm on a record player is generally about nine inches long. Uh, now, there's always been a small subset of people who may or may not be making up for other inadequacies who have gone for 12-inch arms. But um, obviously, are people who feel that there is something else to, to, to make allowances for uh there were arms of 15 16 and 1 18 inch arm at the show uh so god knows what's going on there uh from my limited understanding of engineering that uh creates at least as many problems as it solves but um yeah everyone seems happy and yeah they, they look quite 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 amusing Right, let's move on and uh let's go to next generation blu-ray and to tell us all about it is mark Botrick. <laughs> off <laughs> hodge why don't you do this one okay yep so last tuesday the bda finally confirmed the uh, completed specifications for ultra hd 4k blu-ray now we, we kind of knew what was coming really didn't we it was just yeah. it's, but uh, it obviously supports um uh, the higher resolutions uh it adds uh, support for wider color spaces higher bit rates uh, HDR, higher frame rates, uh, also includes support for the object-based or new audio formats, namely um, DTSX and Atmos. Um, discs will be, how, will, how large were the discs? 100 gig. 100 gig and 66 gig, gig was that right? Yep. Yeah, 66 gig and 100 gig, and we should be expecting to see products in store by Christmas. Great. Any studio signed up, Steve? Not that I've heard of, no. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Look, they. Uh, I, re I reread the um, piece that I think Mark wrote um, when they very quietly announced their plans at EFA last year, uh, and they said they'd have their specs completed by by June, so this May. So they, they basically completed the specs on time, and they said there'd be players in the shops for Christmas, which appears to still be the case. Um, certainly, even talking to some of the manufacturers, they said, "Yeah, we're ready to go." What they're waiting on is the completed specs obviously and some studio support and that's a bit which is a bit quiet at the moment i have to say uh, and it, it's going to survive you know it's going to be a success or fail based upon the studio support the studios i want to support 4k blu-ray or uhd blu-ray uh great if they aren't that bothered and they really want to move on to um downloading and uh, and streaming then we've got a problem i mean I, hopefully there is money to be made in this and they'll do it but why well, am i can say, planning on buying <laughs> yeah <laughs> but um well, but yeah, for me, it's the only way I'm going to get 4K at home, isn't it, in any kind of real sense. So I need it to be supported. But I, I was sitting watching uh, 4K Netflix earlier on, Steve. How's it going? Yeah, it looks fantastic. looks Great fantastic. Enough. Yeah, it does. Yeah, it looks Had it on in the background, wasn't even watching. Yeah. <laughs> so the problem is that they seem pretty cold on, on disc-based formats at all at the moment. Um, you know, definitely some of the studios, like Fox, for example, should be quite, quite down on, on Blu-ray. So... It's either, yeah, we the have thing, to keep our fingers crossed. The thing that stood out for me, Steve, is uh, there was no studio support, yet one of the big things that, that the BDA were pushing was this digital bridge, which is copying 4K material on your hard drive, basically. Yeah. It's a digital copy. Um, is it 4K res or was it not going to be down res? Let me just double check that I am getting that down. Uh, ripping down legit digital bridge doesn't say. But I'm oh, assuming that... Well, I'm assuming that it would have to be better than what they're promising at the minute or what they do at the minute, which is digital HD. 
Um, so if it's just digital HD, then Whoopi do it. It doesn't really stand out as a as a as an extra thing. It does it. So if it's a digital copy, of digital bridge, you have to assume it's at four K. I think it'll be. Downless. I don't think it will be because this has a range of in-home and mobile devices, and four K support wouldn't be covered for most of that, would it? Yeah, it's it's like a token HD. gesture. Yeah, an, an but that's the problem that the code. studios aren't necessarily that keen on people having you know pristine four K discs in their hands that they can then rip and start pirating and copying and passing around. And let's be honest, no matter how good the um, the so-called um, you know copy protection is going to be, uh, usually within about a week of a disc format being released, someone's cracked it. So yeah, PC uh, the same was said for HD. You know, we had exactly the same argument. Oh, a pristine HD version of the film, you know, get pirated, blah, blah, blah. Kind of forgot about it pretty quickly, didn't we? Yeah, yeah, true. true. I, I always think that piracy and, and that kind of thing isn't, isn't as big as the students make it out to be, to be honest. What about Sony? What are Sony going to do? Because obviously they're a founder member of the BDA, aren't they? Yeah, there's one... They've company. got a studio. They've got the they hardware. A studio. So if there's one company you think could <laughs> support it, it'd be Sony. <laughs> You were at Bristol. Or was it Bristol or was it the, the other show where it was a Sony and they were showing off a 4K projector, but they couldn't show Sony Pictures footage in 4K because of licensing issues? Yeah, I know. I've got a bit, you kind of wonder why they bothered. But I've always wondered why Sony bought Columbia Pictures and Columbia Records and then go and don't, you know, don't release 4K UHDs or worse than that at the moment is that you know if you want you know they're, they're really pushing high res audio and then they go and say well if you want to buy some high res audio you know you should go and look at Lynn and people like this because they're selling it it's like you've got you own a record company how hard can this be so uh, far far harder than it appears than, than logic would suggest it is I think is the uh, is the only straight answer to that Sony were always that type of company though they're so big that that on the left hand never knew what the right hand was doing anyway the, the good news is the specs are finalised and they certainly I mean from a basis of the specs alone it would be awesome you know in terms of uh, the high resolution DCI colour space and just to make this clear again we've talked about it before but just because it says up to 2020 doesn't mean say that's what you're going to get uh, it'll be DCI um, so DCI colour space 10-bit uh, video 420 um, I think it's clear to say right now REC 2020 will never happen no, so absolutely not. Yeah, it, it it's a container. That is it. Yeah. It is not a standard. It will never be used because technically it's too narrow a spectrum. And I'm not going to get technical here, but um, it doesn't make any sense whatsoever. No, no. But you know, it, it, we are approaching the point where theoretically, at least, you could be at home watching an a UHD um, Blu-ray and pretty much getting what you're getting at the cinema. I mean, not quite, but very close to. You know, in terms of resolution, in terms of color space, the higher bit video. Um, you know, the, the frame rates. Everything you're getting at the cinema, you're getting at home. So that's that's you know the dream, isn't it? I mean, we talk about home cinema. Well, you're trying to recreate the cinema experience at home, where you can almost literally do that now. Yeah, as, as long like, as studios sign up to it. As long as studios support it. Because yeah. otherwise, you're, you're almost facing a kind of inverted version of what it was with DVD, where you will actually have more choice at the cinema than you will at home, which is you know a kind of weird way that it could happen. Well, actually, we've got, we've got a strange situation at the moment where quite often it's the case that... <laughs> the longer cut of the film often comes out on disc, you know, so you get a theatrical release and later on there's an extended cut on Blu-ray. So in some respects, you're not getting the full experience at the cinema, which seems a bit strange. But um. What happened in the days of, uh, and obviously, Mark, we're going back before you were born, but in the days of Laserdisc, you know, not all the companies, film companies were behind that as a format, but what we found or what did happen was that you had companies like Pioneer who bought the licensing to release films from uh, a variety of studios on the Laserdisc format. And it could be that, you know, there might not be any direct support or, or films getting directly behind it because it might be logistically too hard. But what you could see is maybe one or two companies set up to replicate and, and, and distribute under a, a banner quite a few different studios. That's one way that it could work. That's already happening on Blu-ray. A lot of the smaller, um, you know, back catalogue titles, um, the studios can't be bothered to release them, basically. Um, and they're being, um, the solid science selling the distribution rights to smaller companies like Twilight Time, people like that, Screen Factory, etc. And they're um, they're doing limited you know, limited runs, you know, sort of two, 3,000 copies and selling them that way. And these always sell out, by the way. It's really annoying because you can't get hold of them. Um, but, yeah, basically the studios can't be bothered with the smaller back catalogue stuff, so they're letting other people do it. So it's quite possible that would be one solution. Well, what do you think is the is the likely outcome, Ed? I honestly don't know. Uh, it, doesn't, it comes down to a, a number of intangibles. I mean, if, if you get supermarkets signing up to sell the media, then... I dare say that uh, most film companies would presumably see that there was enough to be going on with. 
you know, enough demand to, 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 to sort of to make it worthwhile. But it, it, you do get the feeling it's like everyone is standing on the edge of the pool, just waiting for somebody else to sort of jump in. I mean, the hard, don't get me wrong, the hardware people are all beavering away. I, I wish them the very best of luck. But yeah, it just seems like if the right people make the jump, then probably almost everyone else will. And, and, and the, there could be a degree of longevity and, and success with the format. Alternatively, if everyone decides to stay on the sidelines, yeah, not quite so easy to judge. Rumours out there, players are going to cost 400 to 500 pounds. That's which, a big barrier, isn't it? Which, talking about the technology, that, that doesn't sound too bad. That's not yeah, bad if you consider Blu-ray, how much Blu-ray players originally cost. And if they're backwards compatible... You know, so it's it's you can offset some of that price. Yeah, well, they ha- they have to be backwards compatible. Yeah, they, they are one of the things. So, yeah, I mean, I, I saw that price and I thought, well, you know, if you're getting 4K resolution, PI, uh, P3 um, color space and so on, and the studio support it, I'll buy into it. Can I just ask a quick question? What's the likelihood that this will be easier to be region-free than Blu-ray? Oh, God if knows. they region-lock something which is already... If you like hovering on the edge of the mainstream, they are utterly suicidal. Yeah, I'd like very to think clear about this. this. Not all studios uh, actually use region locking. So, like Warner's, Universal, Paramount, mostly sometimes Disney, sometimes Sony. Not always, but sometimes don't use region locking. Fox, I think, pretty much use it all the time. But you have to stay so on top of which ones are and aren't region locked with Blu-ray. That practically uh, you do. Uh, I mean, for any, anyone just casually looking at a Blu-ray to even bother with it. It would be great if this new format was there was no regional coding, and that would make perfect sense in terms of um, you know pushing it. The reason that locking still exists, given that most films open around about you know the same time in the UK and the US anyway, and, and generally have a big worldwide release, is that it's with smaller stuff. It's the stuff that gets you know where the company, the production company, sells distribution rights into different territories, and that's why some people still like to have region locking. Um, but certainly, I think the big, most of the big studios don't really care anymore. As far yeah. as I'm aware, uh, it's illegal in the EU. To regionally lock. Yeah. Within the EU. Within yeah, the EU, yeah. Well, that's, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, I, I think it'll be such a niche that I don't think... Because when Blu-ray first came around, there wasn't that an, an awful lot of locking going on, wasn't there? There was no locking on HD DVD, was there? No. So I think, I think locking is gradually a thing of the past. Uh, because of the way that films are distributed and released these days. And I think it would make good sense if you're trying to push a, a, a fairly niche format. You don't want to you know, cripple it and minimise its appeal to, across the globe. You want to sell as many discs and as many players as possible. Especially if uh, it's going to only launch with a few discs or if it's not going to have a, a huge catalogue to start with. You you know, early adopters are going to want to import. It's just, it's just heartbreaking that we're on the precipice of having something this good in our homes and it might flounder on the lack of support from the studios. Oh, stop getting depressed. Um the uh, it's an interesting point that you made there, Mark, because I'm seeing it already happening now with uh, Dolby Atmos. Um, I'm seeing people on the forums tracking down uh, different releases in different parts of the world where the disc is coming out with an Atmos soundtrack and where it, it's not in other parts of the world. So certainly our audience, AV forums, uh, people will go and search out different versions of the films in different regions, different areas, because it'll have stuff like Dolby Atmos. Um, so yeah, if it's 4K and you've got different regions releasing different films and so on, then I can see multi-region players if it's regional lock being really popular, and I can see people because it'll be such a niche buying in from other territories. Um, I quite like that idea. I agree. Um, I just hope that there is a recognition of this and it's made as relatively simple as possible. Otherwise, it's just shooting themselves in the foot. No one's going to have more than well. Let, a, an infinitesimally small number of people are going to go to the effort of having more than one 4K player. So, you know, if they are going to work out as being fairly pricey, they you need to make sure that as much as possible can be played on it. Yeah, I mean, totally. I mean, that's that's how Oppo can get away with charging what they charge for, for their players. They're well built, they're well put together, they're universal, they play everything, streaming on there. And I noticed today that if you own an Oppo player, they are releasing an update so you can get Tidal on your players. So, yeah, yeah that's, that's definitely the future. That's definitely the way. I think these players, if they're going to cost that, they have to be universal. They have to be backwards. Well, they have to anyway with the specs. Um, but they have to offer more than just a box standard Blu-ray player just to get people interested. Yes, I'd agree with that. Right, okay. Uh, talking about new technology taking over, um, how would you like a projector where the bulb 
only dims by about 20% over its lifetime, its entire lifetime. And we're talking a long time. You could watch a film every day for the next 20 years and you still probably would only just be getting to the half-life. And uh, it's now a possibility and it doesn't cost... Well, it doesn't cost tens of thousands. It does cost thousands, but not tens of thousands like it did in the past. So, Steve, you've been enjoying the Epson LS10,000. Uh, I have, yeah. I mean, when this projector was announced last year, it came as a bit of a surprise. It really came out of nowhere to a certain extent. You know, Epson had been releasing a lot of LCD projectors, um, bulb-based, obviously. There had been some um, attempts at alternative methods of lighting the panel. So you'd had LED projectors, uh, which worked quite well. All the benefits you've just mentioned feel like long lifespan and noisy very much. as hell. <laughs> very well. The thing was, they were very. You, know, you have to keep the LEDs at a very specific temperature. So, whilst you would think they'd be really quiet, they weren't at all. They had loads of cooling and were really noisy and not very bright. So they thought, okay, let's make them a bit brighter. So what they came up with was the hybrid LED laser projector, which used uh, two LEDs and also a laser. So uh, I think it was um, red and blue. LEDs and then uh, a blue laser bounced off of a phosphor to create a green part of the spectrum, so that meant it was much brighter. But what we had with those, the, what the, the few projectors that were released that we got to look at, all had massive green spectrums that you just couldn't tame. Um, everything had a little bit of a green tinge to it, basically, which kind of makes sense if you think about it in terms of um, in terms of like one of the, the major source being um, the, the brightest part of the picture, if you like, being just purely green. Um, although green is the largest part of the visual spectrum, so it makes sense in that sense. But it was it just was difficult to tame it in terms of using CMOS. And they were all kind of cheap uh, projectors um, like Acer, this sort of stuff. And then suddenly out of nowhere, Epson released or announced and then released in the States last year, the LS10,000 and the LS9,000, which use laser. Laser, but not just a hybrid, they're full laser projection, which is basically what you're seeing now being installed in commercial cinemas. Uh, I think IMAX has started using laser projection in some of their cinemas. And as you say, Phil, this is the you know, wave of the future. you got a uh, bright picture, consistent picture, and a long life, like 30,000 hours. Uh, my, my first question is, how does it measure? Well, in terms of accuracy. In, in terms of spectrum, colour spectrum. I don't, I don't is, know yet. Is, I measured it. Uh, <laughs> Steve doesn't know. He's been too busy pointing at airline pilots outside. <laughs> I've measured it yet, so I don't know. All I can say is it certainly looks nice and accurate, um, out of the box, granted, but um, the picture quality, it, what, it, what it looks like, Phil, uh, if you forget the fact it's a laser projector for a second, it looks an awful lot like a JVC to okay. this performance. Uh, and this is a 1080p projector, and it, 1080p does, projector, it, yeah. it does the pseudo 4K thing like Yes, like their version of the e-shift that, that, that the JVC are using. So... Uh, I, mean, I can't remember exactly what it was like on the on the five hundred seven hundred, but they had um, a number of different settings, right? So there's on the on the Jet Epson, there's what they call four K one and four K two and four K three. So each time you go up the scale, a bit more sharpening and a bit more what I can only describe as um, um, frame interpolation is going on. The image looks a bit too smooth. The higher up the scale you go in terms of using the this four um, K upscale, if you like. But certainly the, the number one setting, you know, you, you get that same effect you get with E-Shift on, on the lower settings where you get that sort of sense of increased detail, but um, but without it being overly sharpened or, or being in some way smoothed. Um, it looks really good. I, um, like I say, gravity looked absolutely stunning on this projector. I've got to say, you know, it's very bright. I've got it in the eco mode and it's obviously it's a pitch black room where I'm using it in. But uh, even in the eco mode, which is the lowest brightness setting, it's still plenty bright. You can adjust the size of the uh, aperture if you want to. Um, so in other words, you could reduce the amount so, of brightness. So it's a fixed manual aperture, is it? Yes. So there's no, digi it's, it's, there's no digital iris working then? No, no, it's just a manual. You can open and close it Good. Uh, manually. Good. Excellent. Yeah. There's no dynamic iris feature on it. There is, there's a dynamic contrast feature. But what that's doing is boosting, the, it's not changing the iris, it's, it's boosting the contrast in, in the image, which I've turned off anyway. Uh, it, can, it can support up to DCI color space. Uh, it's got um, HDMI 2.0 and HTCP 2.2 um, copy protection support. So um, from the point of view of what we've just been talking about with um, UHD Blu-ray, you could you can, you can accept, a, um, although it's a native for, um, full HD projector in terms of the panel, like the JVCs, it can accept a 4K signal. Um, and then um, you get a slight, you get, you get, a, you get the, not all the full effect, but you get some of the effect thanks to the uh, um, the 4K upscaling, if you like. Again, like the JVCs. So you can still use it with 4K content. So it's not, okay, it's not native 4K like the Sony projectors are. But in terms of black levels, very JVC-like. I mean, they're using a similar type of technology to JVC. I mean, obviously you use well, L-Cost. You know, my, my X700 uh, 
it accepts 4K images. And if you yeah. put native 4K in, it looks really, looks. really good. It looks far better than 1080 through the, the upscaler. Um, you can tell that it's 4K material. It, you know, it's not got the resolution there, but native resolution there, but it looks damn sight better than 1080 upscale. In terms of future-proofing, um, there's a couple of things where I guess, you know, you, you things like HDR, maybe not so much. And I don't know what whether it's 8 or 10-bit. Uh, again, this is another red heron, I think, HDR. Um, it, it, certainly with projector market as well. I, I don't think there's a real need for it, to be honest. If the brightness is there from the Epson, as you're saying it is, and it'll be interesting to see, you know, once you, you, you get round to actually doing some measuring and that kind of thing, which would have been the first thing I'd be doing to see what the results are and see exactly what what the peak brightness is, usable peak brightness. And the other thing is, if you look in the lens with the laser, does it correct your eyes if you've got bad eyes? <laughs> that all blinds you for life. <laughs> I, haven't, I haven't looked in the lens for that very reason, thanks, Ed. <laughs> I'm sure it's... I mean, obviously what they're doing is they're bouncing these lasers off of a phosphor to create the colour, so... Um, you haven't you dropped know, any TVs, not, you haven't stared down the lens of a projector. What it, are you doing all day? It's not so I'm quite glad about this because I don't want him... If, if, if Steve becomes sightless, that A, means that there's a danger that someone else has to go to the cinema more often, and B, I, he might start muscling in on my earphones and headphones racket, and I, I don't want that. They're all mine. I think so. you're quite safe there. <laughs> not if you can't see. It's um in terms of noise, by the way, because you were mentioning about LED um, projectors being quite noisy. This this is um I would say it was about the same as a bulb projector. It's not um, like super quiet. So what projector? Very so noisy either. What projector you got? Is it the 500 you've got? No, I've got um, an X3. X3, right? So in terms of the X3, because that was uh, that was what 20 dB. Yeah. Is it the same as that? It's a, yeah, in eco mode, you're looking about the same, around about 20 dB. Um, bit like the JVCs, though, uh, when you turn on the 4K enhancement feature, you, there is a little bit of extra noise because you can actually hear it operating in the, uh, if you listen closely. Um, so a bit, a bit more noise added there. But uh, I, I would say it's about 20, 20 to 22 dB in terms of uh, in eco mode. Obviously, if you, if you go up to a brighter setting, it sounds, does. Sounds like you don't need it in a back cave. No, not at all. No, I, I was only thinking more of you doing 3D. Um, then you would obviously use a brighter setting. But um, do, do in terms st- of do people still do 3D, <laughs> I, I, I love it. Um, and 3D is great as well, by the way. Um, basically, <laughs> I, I, I've got to say, first thing that struck me was when I got it out of the box was shit. This is big, and shit, this is heavy. It is really quite big. It's kind of like not dissimilar in terms of size to the um, and weight to the Sony um, VW Hunt VW thousand, their original 4K projector. That was a pretty big beast. And this is also pretty big. It has a motorized lens cover, a bit like the JVCs again. But I got it out and I thought, God, this is big and heavy. And then I thought, it just so doesn't look or feel like an Epson projector, which is no disrespect to Epson, but you know, it's been designed, you know, clearly it's been designed to be a real um, premium, higher-end um, AV product um, with an eye on the custom install market. Um, so the whole thing, you know, it's got this sort of lovely curved design. There's a, a push-out panel on the side, so you press it and it pops out, which has got some controls on it, but you can push back in again, so it keeps the nice, clean, sleek design, although that panel is exactly where you would put your hand when you're trying to lift it up. So every time you're trying to lift it up, the panel pops out. Um, the back, when I first got it out, I was thinking, where the hell are the <laughs> inputs? Because there was, there was no sign of any inputs. And then I realised that you had to unscrew the back grille and then that reveals the inputs. And what you can do is you can plug everything in as a tidy little cable management thing. Um, and then you put the grill back on again. And it, again, it keeps it very nice and tidy. So they really thought about this in terms of, look, I mean, you know, it's well built. Um, and as I said, my entire experience was, uh, I, you know, it felt like I had to keep reminding myself it was an Epson and not a JVC. So there are an awful lot of similarities. And I don't know if that's intentional or that's just a coincidence, but still, clearly... The technology involved is similar to what JVC used, and so you're getting very similar in terms of black level performance. But the big difference, obviously, is that this is using a laser projector, um, a laser light source, should I say? And and you know, I think, hope, well, I certainly hope that that is the future. Uh, for, for because you no, know, when it comes to bulb based projectors, bulbs are inherently flawed for the reasons you mentioned at the beginning of this conversation, Phil, which is that you know they dim instantly as soon as you start using them, they're starting to dim. They can lose fifty percent of their brightness within you know within a, within five five hundred to a thousand hours. They're not very consistent, so if you get it calibrated after you know a, a few hundred hours, you, you need to recalibrate it really. Um, and they don't have a very long optimum lifespan, um, so this eliminates all those problems um, all in one fell swoop. And it's bright, and it's efficient, and it's you know consistent, and um, 
and also, you know, to, I mean, hope, well, I'll find out when I measure it, but uh, it should be very accurate in terms of colours too, since you're using lasers. All uh, right. So the review will be up by the time this podcast goes up. Yes. Yes. There you go, well, folks. Not quite. Fam- famous last words. First thing in the morning. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, right. It'll be up on Wednesday, which is when this podcast goes up, yes. Okay. Uh, right, so that rounds up our hardware. We're going to games next. Hey, right, Mark. Games Podcast is out. Tell us all about it. Yes, Games Podcast has gone up now. Um, yep, yeah, we uh, discussed, as I said last week, um, Steam's u-turn on uh they're charging for mods and the kind of outcry over that also uh star wars battlefront and just how much people are excited for that and how it tie in with the new films um the leak about tony hawks that we're getting a new game there um we also saw who was excited about e3 and any potential um predictions about what we might see um and Guitar Hero, which obviously Leon, he's into his uh, rhythm-based guitar games, and so he's suitably excited for that. And we also mentioned a Fonzie mirror. I had a Fonz mirror. They're good, aren't they? I, I got it when I was 10 or 9 or 10 for a birthday. So, so you've got a house full of tat as well? No, it's not got, I'm not got it anymore. But I, I, I did have one once. <laughs> yeah, I, I had like a, a black print of it, and it, yeah, it said, hey. That's what I've got. <laughs> it's, oh, no, like it, a, it's quite a small, it, smallish sort of thing. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, it's handheld. Is... Well, I don't hold it. You do. <laughs> I don't admit to holding it. Yeah, I think I think I know what you're talking about. Send me a photo. Yeah. So it's the same one. Yeah. You you'll see me on on Dickinson's real deal one day. <laughs> I started to let mine go. <laughs> right, Mark. We've got any games news? Yep. Um. I, I guess one of the kind of big reveals of the past week has been Assassin's Creed Syndicate. Not exactly a, a grand surprise or anything, given the fact that. We knew various details of it from marketing and leaks and the like. No great surprise that this year, around the holiday season again, Ubisoft will be releasing another Assassin's Creed game. Um, this time, though, uh, Assassin's Creed Syndicate uh, will be released for the PS4 and Xbox One and sometime after on the PC. So obviously no last-generation consoles, which the hope will be that that obviously leads to a, a slight up increasing quality you know they'll be a bit more polished um this one's going to be set in london and you'll you've got uh twins so there's a female character which from ubisoft's point of view means they've kind of got a little bit more savvy with regards to some of their comments last time about not including a female character. no 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 <laughs> it, it's if you were being cruel you'd say that these games are now at the point where they're designed by committee um, now, but with that in mind, Mark, sorry to interrupt, is that, as I understand it, the last Assassin's Creed, even by the standards of a lot of new release games needing a bit of work on contact with the general public, the last one was heroically broken, certainly it, on, in the, in, when it was initially released. Do you think that they are actually going to put, in light of that, they, they might actually try and release something which, which approximates to finished this time? I, yeah, I, I think they will. I think it, that hurt them massively last time around because there was uh, one famous picture of a woman who didn't seem to have a face. Um, I think that was during a cutscene, and it looked, you know, the eyeballs were just kind of hovering <laughs> in thin air. And that, uh, yeah, that didn't help anyone. Um, this this seems actually quite a conservative effort. I mean, you know, they transpose it to what, London. Same sort of game engine, basically. Yeah, it, it doesn't look like they're going too far out of their comfort zone. It's it's like they're taking what Unity was and polishing it. You know, changing the location, adding a few elements in there. You know, you've got a lot of uh, they showed off lots of horse-drawn carriages and the like, which looks like kind of you know GTA horse. <laughs> <laughs> but but beyond that, it, it, it's it's really. I mean, for some time they have been kind of using the same elements, and and every time they've they've tried to introduce something really fresh it's 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 met with with some resistance um so so i think with this they'll just be looking to put out as polished a game as possible and and everyone's been crying out for a game in in that kind of victorian era industrial age london for some time so i, I think they'll have fans on side with this one definitely wasn't there hang on a second what, what was the order 1886 oh no no that that was 
similar in style in terms of kind of the steampunkness of it all. Um, but no, that was um, just a, a PS4 exclusive and a third-person shooter. Fine, okay. I, I, I do find, as, as an increasingly old person, I find it very hard to keep up with these things. So if you well, if you're going for the Victorian era, then you're going around that kind of... 1870 time where you know virtually any game will say well we may as well weave in jack the ripper somewhere yeah you know yeah, we may as well on. weave in Whitechapel. when in doubt let's kill some hookers <laughs> and and if ed's describing himself as an old man god help steve <laughs> well no but the last i think the last contribution that steve made to the games the gaming section of, of of our podcast was when he you he found that you could get an atari 2600 style rap for an xbox <laughs> I don't Which know, may, may or may not be telling, but you own a PS4. I forget, of course. I've got it? a PS4, and I'm looking forward to Battlefront. So, Star Wars. Yeah. Only, you know. Are you going to I just look, I look forward to you being absolutely pasted by a twelve-year-old. Yeah, <laughs> I'll, I'll give him a ten if he gets past level one without cheating. Yeah, given but they don't do that with games anymore. Yeah, they, 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 the, the, the days of if you bought something and you were just too shite to actually make any progress, they, the games sort of help you these days, don't they? Well, they have to if they're charging £50 a go, don't they? This is true. But proportionally, they were still charging a fortune, even when you had games. I mean, I, I, I'm probably dragging this. I mean, I remember one of the games for the Amiga, Project X. If you got to the end of level one on that, you were a Jedi, basically. I'm, I'm, I'm told that there were four or five more levels, but I never saw when, them. When I was a youngster in the 80s, I was video game mad, and then it went like that, Ed, where it got more and more and more difficult. And in the end, it was just a case of, I'm going to find something else to do. See, I, f- I forget the name of the game, but I'm sure there was one that was, I don't know whether it was apocryphal, but someone researched it where it was technically impossible to complete where it was the kind of thing where it was just so ridiculously challenging that we they see, assumed we, that no one could actually get to the end anyway. We see, we were talking about the the ET documentary, the, this thing about the rubbish tip and all the rest of it, and it was always down as, as being one of the worst games in history, which it was definitely proven that that wasn't the case. And the reason people didn't like it was it was a bloody difficult game. Well, yes, if you fell into a pit, that was it, which is never goes down. quite harsh, isn't it? Yeah, we see that's what put me off video games back in the late '80s, early '90s. It was like, it was because it went too far that way. I got fed up and bored and went elsewhere. Now you see, the, I do agree with you up to a point, but there was also late '80s, early '90s is also an evidence of some of the most perfect difficulty curves of any games ever released. I mean, when you think, so, I mean, admittedly, we're not talking about sort of if you like classic arcade style things, but if you think about the difficulty curve for Lemmings. How how perfect was that? I mean, admittedly, over 144 levels, but it, it just it just a, a really lovely curve. And then stuff like cannon fodder and the like, it just really pitched it absolutely bob on. So yeah, some games were ridiculous, but equally others others they they really had had it down pat. You've seen a great revival for that kind of thing as well. And rightly so. It's just nostalgic people like me who can't cope with modern stuff because it's all a bit bright and fast. <laughs> Going, oh yeah, cannon fodder. I remember that. So uh, yeah, uh, I mean, equally, I have to be honest. If I need to, 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 if I, if I, I mean, obviously, it hasn't really happened since my son was born. But if I have a spare moment, I, either uh, the Transport Tycoon Deluxe Edition or the original version of the Settlers, still the most relaxing ways to waste an entire weekend, in my my humble and probably worthless opinion. I love those games, and both of them have to be knocking on twenty years old now. Have you ever played this Mr. Bones thing they referred to in the article, and why are people prepared to pay £105 for it? No, no, I haven't. I mean, when it comes down to kind of retro games, it's not necessarily about what you want to play, though, is it? Is it not? No, no, I, I would assume it's it's quite similar to collecting vinyl, you know. It's, well, again, it's... I guess it breaks down into two categories. I mean, I don't buy anything because it's rare. I buy it because I want to listen to it. And I'm assuming there are gamers that must do the same thing. But then equally, there must be people after Mint Unopened and games that are absolutely rubbish but only exist in tiny quantities. I suppose there's different drivers to to, to, to what makes us buy stuff. Yeah, but I mean, when you consider the fact that you know, virtually everything that's of genuine value in terms of retro gaming is available online via emulation, Yes, quite easily to people, and and often, I mean, with regards, you know, certain uh, the Hyperkin retro consoles, they will apply filters and things to them so that they look better. So therefore, it's still very much a kind of dedicated, almost an investment if someone wants it, if someone genuinely wants that. But I guess it go 
almost goes back to the type of person who says, no, I'm keeping my Star Wars figures in their box. Well, it's the eight-year-old that says that that you've got to be worried about. <laughs> uh, right, so is that games news, Mark? I think that is. Where's your hair? <sighs> that I, uh, yeah, well, I'm not even going to get on. Is it just me, or was there something slightly distasteful about the Fonz, who was like basically a guy in his 30s dating high schoolers? No, you just, wished, you, you, you just, just wished you were just annoyed that those, those rules don't apply to you. <laughs> <laughs> well, when I, when I watched Happy Days, I was only a kid, so... I, was, I, I think he was, he was only supposed to be about 19 or 20, was he not? <laughs> Henry Winkler was well into his 30s by then. Yeah, yeah, but look at Beverly Hills 902, I know. They were all supposed to be 18 and they're all in their 30s. Oh, shit, did I just say I watched Beverly Hills? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, what do you know? Oh, that's my career ruined. <laughs> Uh, right, so what's at the cinema, Steve? Well, as we discussed at some length last week, Mad Max Fury Road. Good, um, so we don't need to go into it then. I'm going to go against the grain here and say that, because um, it's been getting pretty good reviews across the board, um, and much <laughs> to my surprise, Sharuna reviewed it and gave it 9 out of 10, and Chris McInerney only gave it 8 out of 10, which I was quite impressed at. I, I was a bit bored, really. <laughs> I mean, it's, you're, it's basically... You're not a petrol head. So, I no, mean, true, I'm not a petrol of... head. Half the joy of the original Mad Max was working out what the object used to be before they apocalypsed it. And you probably didn't spend any time at all doing no, that. No, but I did watch Mad Max and Mad Max 2 prior, not directly prior, but the week before I went to go and see Mad Max 3 Road. So I got myself back into a Mad Max mood and I thoroughly enjoyed Mad Max and particularly Mad Max 2, The Road Warrior, which I think is a fantastic film. Mad Max 3 Road is basically a two-hour chase sequence. You know, I mean, I know that's the intention. I know that George Miller's idea was to create a film where you know, he told story and characterization and plot through action, basically. But, it, but it, there isn't very much characterization. There isn't very much plot. And it basically is two hours of chases. And don't get me wrong, the chases are spectacular. The stunt work's amazing. It looks gorgeous. It's shot in the Namibian desert. It looks beautiful. But it's just really loud and really long. And and eventually, it's like being banged over the head with a giant boxing glove. You know, it's kind of fun at first. But after two hours of it, I was getting a bit bored of it. It's everything. Everything in this film is cranked up to eleven, and and so at times I just felt I felt almost battered into submission by the end of it. I know. I mean, I still enjoyed it in places. Um, Laura, who went with me, hated it, <laughs> absolutely hated it, uh, and just was so glad to get out of cinema after two hours of that. Um, it sounds like I, one of those conversations when someone tells you that they hate music in clubs because it's too loud to be able to talk. A, a number of people, quite independently of one another on my Facebook feed, have described it as the loudest thing they've ever <laughs> sat in the cinema with. I, I could probably go along that. I mean, it, it's, I mean, it looks awesome, I have to say. I mean, in terms of the photography, the, the locations, the, the cars, I mean, the, the stuff they build is just way out there. It's absolutely, I mean, the whole thing is bonkers full of mutants and these insane looking vehicles and there's Cherise Char- Theron with um, basically one of her arms missing and that's why I call method acting um, you know so she's got like a robot uh, left arm um, Tom Hardy I don't know where his accent's supposed to be coming from but it's all over the place it's, it's not really English it's not really Oz sometimes it's a bit South African it's, it's a very strange accent he's doing it's not the easiest role and and I'm not a fan of Tom Hardy. I don't. Think, I don't particularly like him. I know Kaz wants to, has a massive man crush on Tom Hardy, but personally, I'm not that bothered by him. Um, I, he has none of the charisma of Mel Gibson. Uh, I mean, admittedly, you obviously couldn't use Mad Mel now, but but certainly, <laughs> to be honest, though, that's an, an ironic situation given that yeah. he is quite, <laughs> too mad quite to play mad. Mad Max. <laughs> he's too mad now to play Mad Max. But if you watch the first two films, he looks great. You know, he's got real charisma, and he's you know he's, he's good looking, and he, you know you can't take your eyes off the guy. It, it works really well in, it, in that context. And Tom Hardy has none of that, in my opinion. I, I've um, never never once looked at Mel Gibson and thought any of those things, Steve. But you don't think Mel Gibson's an attractive man? I think Mel Gibson's an attractive man. Well, was an attractive man. Come on, seriously. I certainly think most women would probably agree with that statement. There's no fault. Um, <laughs> yeah, he's <laughs> not true. true. Um, yeah, it's, it's, so it's it's a Mad Max movie. So if you've seen a Mad Max film, then you know what to expect, and you're going to get it, and you're going to get it in spades. I just think maybe an hour and a, you know an hour and a half would have been because if you look at the, the previous three movies, are all an hour and a half long, and that's about the right length for this kind of thing. It's just too much of everything. It's just too long, too loud, too big, too brash, too oh, insane. Um, you know, not enough, but and in conversely, not enough characterization and plot, in my opinion. So, right. okay, I came away a bit disappointed, really. It's a shame. 
Good. I like Thank it when you, you get disappointed. Right, let's move on. Uh, films opening this Friday. Right, well, this Friday we've got Poltergeist, um, the latest in the long run of unnecessary remakes. Now, so, now how, how do you know it's unnecessary? Have you seen it yet? No, but I but Poltergeist, the 1982 version, is great. Why do you need to remake something? They got it right yeah, but the first it could, it could be even better. Looking at the trailer, it looks like it's, it's a pretty much a shot-for-shot remake of the original film. So if you took it in a completely different direction, maybe that you're right. Maybe you could take a film, remake it. I mean, if you look at, say, The Thing, John Carpenter's... Well, I was, I was just thinking Mad Max. So you've got the original Mad Max, and then you've got the second Mad Max. They're basically yeah, the same just, film, but the second one's far better. Yeah, or Evil Dead 2 and Evil Dead. Yeah. But in the trailers, it looks like uh, it's, they're just kind of just doing the same thing over again. And, and so, well, we'll see. I mean, maybe it'll work. But um, I, I love the original Poltergeist, because uh, I guess it's, it's partly my age, you know, and... You know, you saw it as a kid, so you, you kind of you, you're sticking by it. But um, I thought it was a '70s film, not a '60s film. 1982. Shut up. <laughs> and the other film opening uh, on Friday is Tomorrowland, which is a new film from Brad Bird. So they're, they're, the press screenings on Wednesday, the film opens on Thursday, and that way, at least, I guess they hope to keep some surprises. But it looks interesting. It's got George Clooney in the lead role. What I've seen in the trailers has piqued my interest, and I am looking forward to seeing it. I'm assuming I'm the only one who's going to go to see any of these films at the weekend. I really want to go and see Mad Max, but. The chances of me making it to the cinema are roughly equivalent to me winning the lottery. And I, actually, to be honest, I'd rather win the lottery. But nonetheless, yeah. I'd, <laughs> Given uh, the option, yes. Yeah. So, yeah, um, no, it, it's regrettable, but I, it's going to be another film. I, this. How, how much does it cost for the BBC nowadays? Enough. Really? Especially as, as, you know, the other thing is that it is my wife's, um, you know, sort of, thing her her method of of unwinding a bit she goes on on a sunday evening and that means i i obviously can't so uh i think she's getting away from you as well as the baby there is there's undoubtedly an element of that but i've got an enormous valve amp to listen to so i actually i don't care so uh right um any blu-rays worth buying this week steve yes we've got uh big hero six coming out on monday uh, which I haven't seen yet, but actually uh, has a really good reviews and looks like it'd be really good fun. It's a Disney animated film in 3D, if you like 3D still. Um, so I'm looking forward to that one coming out next week. Uh, Simon did a review of that on the, on the site, didn't he? He did the, he did the yes, the um, cinema release and he enjoyed it. He thought it was really good. So yeah, I'm, look, I'm looking forward to that. I'm getting that on Disney next week, actually. So I'm looking forward to that. Um, and also a rare 3D treat. So um, good. And also we've got Wild, which is the film with Reese Witherspoon, which she got nominated for an Oscar for. Uh, again, I, I like the look of this. I haven't seen it yet, but um, is this I, yeah. the again, back, it's had really... Is this the backpacker? Yes, that's right. it. Yeah. But um, based no, on a true, based on a true story, isn't it? Yes, and um, I think, but I will, I'll probably catch that when it pops up on Netflix or something like that. To be honest, but, um, but certainly it's a film I'm interested in seeing at some point. And also uh, released on Blu-ray next week is BBC's new series Shark, which. Photography-wise, um, I'm sure will look absolutely stunning. Certainly on TV, the, the photography is amazing. But as I was talking about this with you this morning, Phil, it really does li- show the limitations of um, of um, HD broadcasts. On, on, the, on the terrestrial uh, tuners on this TV, I'm testing. I mean, I thought it was, I thought it was a serious problem with it um, because of the, there was so much in terms of gradation issues and stair stepping and all sorts of things going on. Um, but no, it's just uh, crap compression for for digital broadcast. It, yeah. it will look really nice on disc. But yeah, the thing it'll look is, gorgeous on disc. But the thing is, you got to pay for the disc. True, but I mean, it's not a big deal if you if you want to watch something. I mean, the the when you when you watch these um these documentaries, you know, these national documentaries like this or more recent ones, quite often now they have these little production diaries at the end. If you notice, like the last five minutes or so, um, and and they go into how they shot some of the scenes in that episode. And when you realise they've spent maybe five or six years producing this series and the lengths they have gone to to get some of the shots, you got to respect them. And you can see they're using really top-notch equipment. I mean, they were using red cameras a lot of the time on these shoots by the looks of it. I, I, was, know, I wasn't but, bothered about the guy his camera it was the fact that he didn't have a cage and he was he was swimming yeah he was with, amongst great whites with three <laughs> great whites and huge female great whites not little tiddlers like three big yeah. massive females balls the size of church bells yep um, <laughs> of course you're watching it just thinking oh, I hope he gets eaten well <laughs> Co- didn't they say last, last week so we fought, the first episode said that they're in, in, in the, shooting something like 360 hours of footage not one um, cameraman or anyone got attacked by a shark in the whole time so, uh, you do expect to see at the end of it dedicated to the memory of. It's <laughs> <laughs> a shame all this is getting cut out. 
And that's it for Blue Rice Film. Okay, and uh, sadly, that's it for the podcast this week. We've uh, run out of time, so my thanks to Steve Withers. You son of a bitch. You left the bodies and you only moved the headstones. Mark Hodgkinson. This house is clean. Mark Botwright. Do that one. <laughs> right, and I was going to do it in accent. Oh, I, didn't, I can't remember. Well, go on then, do it in the accent. This house is clean. That's <laughs> 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 I'll go check the kitchen. Don't forget, you can follow us on Twitter and Facebook, bookmarkavforums.com for latest reviews, news, and video. And you can also leave us a rating on iTunes if you enjoyed the show. I'm Phil Hinton. Thank you very much for listening. And we'll see you again next week. I was secretly hoping during that podcast recording that at one point we'd hear a massive crash in the background. Yeah. Fuck <laughs> you and the ship you sail here. <laughs>